Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Elvin Taylor. Welcome and thank you for joining us today. The next hour is devoted to learning something more, not just about the world of shoes and ships and sealing wax, but about how, what, and why we believe as we do. A time for those willing to question what they think they know or what they may believe, those willing to be uncertain for an hour. I'm Eldon Taylor, and this is Provocative Enlightenment. All right, our chat room is open, and my partner, Ravinder, awaits you there now. You can log on by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. We do have a great chat room, so Ravinder, tell us all about it, please. We do have a great chat room. It's a great place to share ideas and perspectives on whatever is being discussed on the air, to ask questions amongst ourselves. And, you know, we we come up with lots of answers, lots of solutions there, and certainly lots of food for thought. So if you can join us as well and join in the conversation, we would very much like it. That is provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. All right. In today's spotlight, I would like to discuss the notion of ghosts and ghouls. Defining the difference between ghosts and ghouls may not be as straightforward as one might at first blush think. A ghost is generally defined as an apparition of a dead person that is believed to appear or become manifest to the living, typically as a nebulous image. Now, does <clears throat> that does, well, now that, I'm going to get this said. Now, does that include a master, a guide, and or an angel? The matter is unclear here. In other words, does a person have to be dead in order to be a disincarnate being appearing to you? As for a ghoul, they are defined as an evil spirit or phantom, especially one supposed to rob graves and feed on dead bodies. We watch that kind of thing in our horror movies. So any being, apparently disincarnate or dead, can easily fit within this definition, and as such, there is less ambiguity, for they are simply evil manifestations. I do suppose, then, that a poltergeist with evil intent is also a ghoul, albeit they are not typically thought of in that light. Okay, here's an interesting statistic. According to Gallup, approximately one-third of Americans believe in ghosts or disembodied spirits, and 22% believe in witches. Men were more likely than women to say they believe in witches, 24% to 20. Can't understand why. <laughs> well, the, you can't laugh, Ravinder. Well, the opposite is true about ghosts. Women were more likely than men to say they believe in ghosts, 34% to 27%. As interesting as this finding is, Most of us have considered the possibility of paranormal before. Was that creek a ghost or the house settling in? Was that a shadow or a Bigfoot? And who was flickering the lights? The hash-slinging slasher? But according to sociologists at Chapman University, a sizable 52% of America actually believes in this spooky stuff. The fear of ghosts is sometimes referred to as phasmophobia. 
But perhaps surprisingly, more people are afraid of clowns than ghosts or ghouls. Skeptics, of course, argue there are no ghosts. That said, according to a poll of 1,000 adults over the age of 18, a new poll conducted by HuffPost discovered that 45% believed in ghosts. Now, one might fault the polling method as compared to that of professional pollsters like Gallup, but that said, in an interview with Brad Steiger, published in the HuffPost, Steiger has this to say about ghosts. Quote, After more than 60 years researching the paranormal and nearly that many investigating haunted houses, I spend little time these days theorizing about what ghosts might be. I completely accept the existence of such phenomena. Close quote. The skeptics are quick to point out that the number of believers in ghosts and goblins is rapidly diminishing as our culture becomes less superstitious and more educated. And indeed, again, according to pollsters, this appears to be true. However, I have had my own encounters with disincarnate beings, and whether in fact they were real or imagined, I have no doubt about their genuine nature, and for that matter, contribution to my own well-being. So what do you think? Are ghosts real or imagined? Is it superstitious mumbo-jumbo from historical failures to grasp the real world and simply inherited or passed down by some of those of us in our time? In the alternative, do we propagate the idea every time we see a scary ghost movie or celebrate the custom of Halloween? Again, where all of these factors and more may account for some of the reported ghost sightings and much of the belief among believers, for me, just me, ghosts are real. At least, as I like to say, that's my story and I'm sticking to it. How about you, Ravinder? <laughs> well, I don't know, actually. Um, it's not my story. Um you know, I think where the confusion comes in is there are, you hear lots and lots of stories, ghost stories or whatever, and oftentimes it's a hoax or it can be explained away by something reasonable once you understand everything going on. And I think that holds true for 99.9% .9 of the things that we hear about ghosts. But then there are a few of those stories that are just, um, that defy explanation. So I think I'm, I'm on the fence about it. I have n not encountered any myself. Um, and I think that actually could explain the, uh, the fear of clowns, why there are, why more people are afraid of clowns, because more people have simply encountered clowns. And yeah, as a child, it could be like Santa Claus, actually. You know, when they, when your parents put you up on Father Christmas's knee. It's like, who is this weird person? Well, I think clowns go into the same category as that. So more people just encounter them. Um, but no, I I don't know. I really don't know if I so, believe in ghosts. You're going to pick on me. I can see it on your face. No, no, no. I'm going to ask you. You were splitting up when I said, you know, I gave this Men statistics. believe in witches. <laughs> witches, I think that's a bit of a, yeah, that's very telling. That's a very telling. It's like, okay, let's see how that changes as the Me Too movement takes off. Maybe it'll get worse or maybe Whoa. it'll get better. Well, 
I do. You know, they believe in witches. Come on, you tend to think of a woman as a witch and they, yeah, you can go down a whole avenue there of uh, weird stuff. It's like, yeah, I, I think it's weird that men believe in witches. Come on. Well, women believe, too. It's just a higher percentage of men, but I'm not touching your, <laughs> your other comment. All right, every week I read some of your letters as our way of involving you while paying respect to the very important role you play in making this show successful. Connie wrote, I just love provocative enlightenment. Tom wrote, love your show, great guests, great conversation, great information. Lawrence wrote, I had never listened to KKNW before your show. Now it's one of my regulars. Thanks Thanks for the great programming. Moving on, Jackie wrote, for years now I've been stuck in a rut and getting nothing accomplished in my life. So I began listening to your Prosperity and Abundance Inner Talk CD all day and night while I was sleeping. Third week into listening, I started marketing again and working on my business, working daily and having a routine down, which I felt was difficult to do before, and I credit your programs for it. Thank you for helping me get my motivation back. Richard wrote, thank you so much, Rav and Eldon. You make the world so much better of a place. Well, thank you, Richard. Okay, that's all the time we're going to take for letters today, but we do love your comments, so please keep them coming. You can opine by writing to me at Eldon, that's E-L-D-O-N, at EldonTaylor.com, or by joining me on Facebook at Dr. Eldon Taylor. We do sincerely appreciate your thoughts and ideas. Now to today's show, The Ghosts of Gombe, a true story of love and death in an African wilderness with author, very prolific author indeed, Dale Peterson. One of the reviewers had this to say about The Ghosts of Gombe, and I quote, This brilliant narrative will haunt you. Dale Peterson has brought to life the Gombe of the late 1960s, describing the entwined lives of the chimpanzees and the people studying them. It's a true story of adventure, danger, and sudden death that makes compelling reading. So let me tell you a little about today's guest. After receiving a Ph.D. in English literature from Stanford University, Dale Peterson became a carpenter and then turned to a career as a writer of nonfiction. His 21 books have touched on subjects including art, anthropology, biography, chimpanzees, computers, elephants, giraffes, literature, primates, primatology, psychiatry, and travel. He is the author of the definitive biography of the world-famous chimpanzee expert, Dr. Jane Goodall. Dale Peterson's latest work, The Ghost of Gombe, which was just released a week ago and should be in your local bookstores right now, and it is online and available today, I checked returns to the subject of the Goodall biography. Although with a different perspective and focus and a concentration on the tragic death of one young volunteer researcher at Goodall's research camp in East Africa. It's a great read. It, it, it reads as though I were reading a fiction story um, packed with information that is, is uh, very informative, as though I'm looking at a documentary I truly recommend this book. So on that, let's get him in here. Welcome to Provocative Enlightenment, Dale Peterson. Well, thank you, Eldon. Here I am, and uh, glad to be here. Ah, good. I've been looking forward to this interview. I'm impressed by the breadth of your work, but we'll get to that in a minute. We like to know three things on this show, Dale. And would you prefer to be called Dr. Peterson? You can call me Dale. 
jail. That's just fine. Okay. The three things. Who is the messenger? What is the message? And how do we use it? To that end, please share with us what dictates your life's ambitions and passions. <laughs> well, um, that's a terrific question. I'm, I'm glad you started with that. Um, I, <laughs> you know, I started my career as a writer because I like to write. I'm the kind of person who actually prefers to sit alone in a room and deal with the world by constructing uh, narratives of the world. But the second strand of this is that I've always loved animals and had a, a real attraction to them. So most of my books um, are about animals. You know, I started as a, book, a writer of books about computers because I was able to sell those books. But then once I got successful, I turned to you know, I asked myself what I cared about, and that's when I started writing about animals. Um, so I think that answers your question, I hope. All right, sir, let me ask you this. You heard today's spotlight. What say you, Dale? Do you believe in ghosts? Well, um, yes and no. <laughs> I think I'm a skeptic in terms of the idea of entities floating around made out of ectoplasm or whatever. Uh, but I also think people have had genuine experiences of seeing people. Uh, and in fact, my book opens with a visitation of, um, you know, an image or a representation of uh, this young woman who died tragically years ago. And she appeared in the vision to my friend, Gabe Pelicky. Uh And I, you know, it was a very vivid experience for him, and uh, he felt it was in some way real. Uh, he didn't think it was a dream. Uh, and but in the end, he thought it was very disturbing and troubling, but that it was something that came from his own mind. And I've thought about that experience a long time and I agree that it was something, it was basically a hallucination that appeared uh, an expression of grief that he had suppressed for many years and uh, at a time, appeared at a time of great crisis in his own life. Fair the enough. Story, you know, the story I write about is about this woman, I mean, so I start with the story of this ghost Right. Well, the reason for today's spotlight and this question is all about how your book opens. Right. And and as I read the book, you know, um, I had to ask myself, do do I believe in ghosts? And, right. You know, or is it? I have had a couple of experiences, which is neither here nor there, to your book, but. Uh, you know, I suppose, you know, it's always possible to question yourself. Was that a hallucination? Right. Was that part of imagination? Was that part of some kind of sleep state? Uh, right. I have my own reasons for going beyond that, but that's neither here nor there. Uh, but that's, of course, why the question. Mm-hmm. All right. Before we launch into the subject of your new book, your prior work has addressed the idea of animal morality. And as you just said, animals have been very important to you. So are animals moral, and if so, can you provide a couple of examples or stories that demonstrate so? Well, I think they are. Uh, I've had a, you know, I 
in the moral life of animals is that morality is an evolutionary development and that the function of morality is um, to uh, promote group coherence. Uh, you know, evolution itself is you know, the idea of um, competition among individuals is based, you know, evolution is based on this idea of competition. Well, if you have nothing but competition, you can't live in a group. Uh, so what is it that enables individuals to live in a group? It's a system of emotions and a system of, a system of social spaces that in humans we call morality. Tribal identification. A rule rule that you will find in the Bible. You don't, um, you know, you don't deceive people in important circumstances. It's another rule you'll find in the Bible. All of these things are, you'll find among animals too. I mean, animals live in groups and they get, you know, group living animals get along with each other. Well, why? Right. Um, And so, you know, that. The, the book, More Life of Animals, is a very extensive analysis of this. Um, and uh, I actually just use the Bible as my sample of, you know, what we think is morality. So I go through the Ten Commandments, and then I go into the, uh, the New Testament, which is, is for me, is, is, all of, is largely about love thy neighbor, it's about empathy. And empathy among am- animals is, is, is also a characteristic, at least among mammals. Um, elephants are the probably my favorite example because they're they're actually impressively empathetic. And um, you know, there was a, a wonderful study done by someone I know uh, who was watching elephants in in a rainforest uh, in a you know scientific research space, and so she had a place to situate herself and watch the elephants come and go in a clearing in the forest. And uh, one day she watched a, uh, a baby elephant who was uh, very ill and eventually died, and then she just took a video of two days of all of the elephants passing through this forest and how they responded to them. Well, there were 126 different individual elephants that passed by as this young elephant was dying or dead. And about half in half the instances, uh, the elephants actually tried to assist, tried to help raise the, you know, the baby. They tried to help get her on her feet again. Uh, and in some cases, they acted as if they were prepared to defend ill and dying infant from others. Uh, so it's really, uh, for me, that's, you know, it, it's, it's like the parable of the Good Samaritan. Uh, you know, the Good Samaritan, uh, three people pass by uh, a, a, a Jew who has been um, set upon by robbers on the thieves on the road right. to Jerusalem and left naked and left dying, and uh, three people passed by, two are honorable members of this Jewish community, and the third is a Samaritan, who's a, a, you know, an apostate Jew, 
and the two passed by were just afraid. They listened to fear. They left. The third one who stopped the Samaritan listened to empathy. And it seems I, to me that this wonderful tale of elephants, which is very, very detailed, of you know, genuine scientific uh, report, is very much like that. You know, some of the elephants passed by and hurried along because it was dangerous. But a, a large number of them stopped and tried to tried to assist. So I, I've, I've written a book about elephants, and I've done another book about elephants. So I, I'm actually, aside from that piece of research, I just know enough about elephants to know that this is really very typical about these animals. They're very, very empathetic. Empathy is one part of human moral systems, an important part. Uh, we write about it in the New Testament. It's central to the New Testament. And empathy will be found among elephants and other uh, mammal species. Familial bonding, it, it occurs to me, is also another element of uh, morality, uh, at least, you know, as we see it within tribes. And you tell a story of... Uh, Two brothers, um, an alpha chimpanzee and a younger brother, and the alpha uh, becomes partially paralyzed. Eventually, these two brothers who have picked on one another, sibling rivalry, just like among young boys, they uh, they end up working together. Uh, so I think, and I don't want to spoil that story. I want our readers or listeners to read the book, but uh, I think that's another example. Um, let me ask you this, though. As an animal person, and I don't mean that for this to be an unfair question, it's one I ask myself all the time. Right. Are you a vegan, a vegetarian, or are you a meat eater? <laughs> well, it, you know, I'm, I'm a vegetarian. And uh, I, I don't, you know, I know there are people who are very serious vegans, so I don't like to get into discussions about it, but I... I just can't, I just don't bring myself that far, and uh, I don't, you know, I can understand that uh, you might not, you know, that you, that, say, chickens, for example, raised in uh, bad conditions, um, that's not a good thing, uh, but if you have free-range chickens, why not eat the eggs? I don't, I really don't understand it, and I also think there's, you know, I get I you. you. You need some animal protein. You need milk. You need eggs. You need something uh, for uh, vitamin D. And so I think there's a health aspect. But I, it's really not an argument I, I'm comfortable with because I've had some, some people who are very emphatic about being vegans, and I, I'm just not. Yeah, well, that. I get you 100%. I'm vegan when I eat at home. Because my wife is a vegan, but I'm vegetarian when I'm outside. And we have our own chickens, for what it's worth. She's looking at me right now. And they are the most spoiled animals you can possibly imagine. And she won't eat their eggs, but I surely will. They are great eggs. So, all right. Now for a moment. From your book, Jane Goodall, The Woman Who Redefined Man. You know, I've talked to people about this book, and and they typically give me the same question, so I'm going to bounce it at you. Just how do you think she redefined man? Well, (laughs) um, the the title actually was invented by my editor. I didn't come up with it. But um, 
appreciated the, the magnificent phrase which he put in a a, a, a telegram. Uh, now we will have to either defi- redefine tool, redefine chimpanzee, or redefine man. And uh, so, because Jane had discovered chimps were using tools, so it was a wonderful phrase, and uh, it's a it's a wonderful concept. The larger idea is that she did some spectacular work and really changed our knowledge about chimpanzees in a revolutionary way. And, you know, one of the pieces she discovered famously is that they use tools. Yeah, that's great. All right, we've got a hard break, and I don't want to get us kicked out of the computer, so... Uh, when we come back, we'll pick it up where we are. We're speaking with Mr. D- Dr. Dale Peterson about his work and book, The Ghost of Gombe, The True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. Again, it is a great read. You're going to want to get the book. It's very informative, and it's an adventure story. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at Dale Peterson. That's S-O-N, Peterson, author.com. One word, Dale Peterson, author.com. Now, we have a video for you in our chat room featuring our guest speaking about the ghosts of Gombe. So if you're not in the chat room already, now is the time to get on over there. And you can do that again by going to provocativeenlightenment.com forward slash chat. Okay, do please stay tuned. We'll be right back. You're listening to Provocative Enlightenment with Elton Taylor. Change has never been easier. Whether you wish to lose weight, stop smoking, build better relationships, become creative, enjoy ultra-prosperity, or simply relax and promote self-healing, InnerTalk has been repeatedly demonstrated effective in the most rigorous of scientific studies. Our customers love InnerTalk. Sean wrote, I have struggled with bulimia for over 30 years and have never been able to lose weight without restoring to it until I used InnerTalk. Vicki wrote, My hubby has been using the Stop Snoring CD, and already his dangerous and raucous snoring levels have stopped. Celeste wrote, I recently graduated from Taft Law School with honors. I'm writing to tell you how much your InnerTalk CD, Excel in Exams, has helped me. With over 300 titles to choose from, there is something for everyone. Check it out today by going to innertalk.com. Unlock the power of your mind. This is Provocative Enlightenment with Alvin Taylor.
Welcome back. If you've just joined us, we're chatting with Dale Peterson about his work and book, The Ghosts of Gombe, A True Story of Love and Death in an African Wilderness. You can learn more about our guest by visiting his website at dalepetersonauthor.com. Now we ask our guests for their favorite music, music that has some true significance to them. Music psychology is a field of research with practical relevance in many areas, including intelligence, creativity, personality, and social behavior. So we just played some of J.S. Bach's Six Cello Suites. Tell us, Dale, why is this music important to you, and how does it inform us about who you are? (laughs) Another surprising question. Uh, (laughs) I don't know. Uh, I just have always loved it. I find it very peaceful, and, um, you know, I I grew up in the 60s, so I I like 60s rock and roll, but when I really need peace and uh, just coherence, uh, I find that this particular piece by Janice Bach is as close as I can come to um, just taking myself away from all of the stresses of my daily life and uh, just focusing and concentrating. So obviously there's a strong psychological sense about this music. Um, and that, that's probably my best explanation. Just out of curiosity, do you write to this music or do you I, use it I when do, you... and uh, I'm, I'm a little obsessive. I've had this single... CD on my CD player for probably four years, and uh, sometimes I do, you know, just turn on classical radio, and occasionally, occasionally I like what I hear, but when when I don't, this is uh, I I lapse back into this, and I suppose it's a sign of a great piece of music that here I'm listening for four years, and I'm I'm still not tired of. So would you say you have some any conditioned pairing? You hear the music, and as soon as you hear it, you're in a certain place doing a certain thing? Well, I suppose that would be one way to think about it, is I've been conditioned. But I, I, think, it's, uh, I think it's deeper than that. I think the music itself is just um, has that effect on me, and it did the first time I heard it. And, um, you know, I, I like much of uh, Bach's music anyway. This just seems to be one of the purest pieces. Uh, just a perfect combination of simplicity and complexity. Music lives, in my opinion, and sometimes just participating in some music is sharing life. Uh, you were a conscientious objector, sir, during the Vietnam War, and I understand you were therefore assigned to duties in a VA psych ward. I think you wrote a fiction book during this time as well as, uh, and and that was never published. How did this experience impact your life, and was it the beginning of your writing career? No, well, I think I've always wanted to be a writer ever since I was um, near the end of high school. Uh, Before then, I'd been a science tech person and thought I would be an engineer, but... uh, I was so bad in English that um, I I just made a point of starting to read books, and uh, eventually I became good in English and realized I wanted to be a writer. Uh, then I think, you know, during the... So I always had this ambition to write, 
and it's true that I, I wrote a novel about based on my experience uh, working at the VA and the psych ward. Uh, it was, um, in fact, very, very, you know, the experience was very close to uh, Ken Kesey's experience in One Flew the Cuckoo's Nest. He worked at uh, the Palo Alto VA in Palo Alto, California, and I actually worked there at one point and worked on the ward where he worked, and uh, but most of the time I worked on a related VA hospital that was in Menlo Park, California. Uh, but I think, you know, part of the problem of writing that novel was writing in the shadow of Ken Kesey and trying to write something that was original, uh, because he had captured uh, the uh, the experience so well, the experience of being there and observing it and, and, and thinking about uh, uh, being a patient. Uh, and I tried to do that. I think I did a good job. You know, some people liked it. I got some good readings, but um, I got discouraged trying to get it published. And I also oh. realized that I preferred to write nonfiction. Um, I just, you know, I just happened to prefer writing about the world around me rather than sort of thinking about my own experience and projecting that into a work of fiction. Will we ever see this uh, fiction novel? I don't think so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I still have it. It's still sitting on my shelf, but it's uh, one of my early works. And uh, I just, uh, you know, just never got published. All right. You've had a, a truly unusual career. Um, you earn a Ph.D. in English literature from a Ivy League school. Then you go off and become a carpenter. And then from a carpenter, you, be, you turn into a, a professional writer writing about everything from primates to psychiatry. Uh, how did you do that? Well, I, you know, obviously the, there's a... The strand there is writing, and I, I think I feel, as a writer, that writing is a skill. It's not a piece of knowledge, and uh, theoretically, you really should be able to write about anything. Uh, it's, it's true that it's more difficult to write about some things than others, but um, uh, so that's part of it.
I called up the publisher and I spoke to the editor and I said, well, you know, I was in that contract and I would like to do the book. And he said, well, what do you know about computers? And I said, absolutely nothing. That's why I should do the book. Um, and I thought that at the time. I thought, you know, if you would know nothing, then you're starting out like a beginner and you explain it to yourself. Right. And you can explain it to other people. Uh, and so that's an interesting principle. I think it's, you know, in that case, I, if I had been the publisher, I don't think I would have said yes to that. But uh, anyway, he did. So. Oh, interesting. I, <clears throat> how did you meet Jane Goodall? And um, what brought her to trust you? Well, I, you know, that... Once I had finished, I, I wrote, I, I think, four books on computers, possibly five, I can't remember, four, let's say, and I also designed a computer game, and and I actually made money out of this, and I thought, you know, when I said this early in your program, once I realized I make, could make money, what did I want, want to write about, and I, I said I want to write about animals, and I decided to write about primates, almost randomly, but I had read an article in a newspaper about endangered primates. So I spent four years teaching myself about primates, and a lot of this was just hard travel around the world through South America, through the Amazon, through across Africa, and into Southeast Asia with the specific goal of finding the world's 12 most endangered primates primates being about 400 species of apes and monkeys and uh, lemurs and, and so on. Uh, so I self-educated myself in primates. I produced this one book. And then I thought to myself, well, there's a primate species that I should write about because it's so interesting. But there's been so much written. I I'm a little scared, and I thought I'll find a, an expert to help me. Uh, and the species I was thinking about was chimpanzees. They're fascinating, but there's a lot been written, uh, and a lot of people who have real expertise. So I set out looking for an expert, and I happened to read an article in a magazine uh, written by an expert. His name was Gazed Pelicky, and I contacted him, and I said, you know, I'm a writer. I want to write a book about computers. Would you be willing to, uh, you know, help me? And he said, sure, come down and let's talk. He lived in Washington, D.C. I live in Boston. So I went down there, and uh, I got there, and we had a chat. And then after a couple of hours, he said, you know, how would you like to write a book with Jane Goodall? <laughs> and I said, sure, yeah, absolutely. And so it turned out that was Jane was looking for... Um, somebody to help her write a book, looking for a writer. And um, so Gaze introduced the two of us, Jane and me, and then the three of us, Jane, Gaze, and myself, together uh, put together this book that uh, called Visions of Caliban. And I was the primary writer on that book. Jane was the second writer, and Gaze was the researcher. And Jane liked the book, and uh, it was the start of uh, a friendship that, uh, you know, is 30 years and still going. So uh, it was successful, and Jane and I became pretty close friends, and uh, we realized that we 
you know, when you think about Jane Goodall, Dr. Goodall, you, you know, she is an icon in a, a very, you know, important niche of our understanding of who we are as human beings, this whole argument of evolution, and, and in many other areas. You knew her personally. You've now written two books that basically are biographical in nature, and I'll, and, and I'll get to more of that in just a minute. But tell us about her. I mean, is she, um, you know, is she a likable person? Um, does she deserve the celebrity? Is she nasty privately? Is, you know, tell us about her. Well, I can say she's not nasty, na- nasty privately. She is, um, she's very much like you would imagine she is from look, watching her in movies and reading about her. She's an extremely thoughtful, kind, and sensitive human being. Uh, she's, in some ways, you know, a very normal person, but she does have some really remarkable qualities. Uh, I, I I admire them, them them all or almost all. Uh, the uh, you know the thing that I think was probably impressed me the most in terms of just who she is is that I wrote this biography of her and you know I spent ten years on it. She gave me I had personal letters. I interviewed all of them. Friends. I met her family. I met her father. I met her, her one of her ex-husbands. The other one was dead by then. Uh, and she would, you know, she gave me her collection, the most intimate collection of personal love letters that she had written that she corresponded with her second husband, and she just handed them to me. You know, this 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 intense level of trust. And during the 10 years that I wrote the book, she never once asked me what I was writing. She never once asked me to see it. And I, I just am, I've always been so impressed by that level of, of trust. And, um, you know, it's almost as if she has other things to think about rather than what somebody's writing about her. Uh, it, it was true that at the end, when, when the book was finally written, I thought it would be appropriate to let her look at it and comment, and she did, and she made some, she made a few corrections on it. And the only, the one thing that was kind of a personal comment that I found interesting was uh, about the color of her hair. Uh, I described her hair as being gray, and uh, then there was a time when I was with her in Paris, France, uh, sitting in a hotel room. She had just received the Legion of Honor from, presented by the president of France. Uh, and uh, we were sitting in the hotel room afterwards, after this long day of honors, celebrities, and so on, and... Uh, I was sitting there with the two or three other people, and we were having a glass of scotch. Um, Jane likes to drink scotch. Uh, and just sort of having a long, sort of end-of-day, exhausted conversation. I wasn't really paying attention until I heard Jane saying something like, uh, you know, these journalists in 
know, the book had not been published yet. And I said, well, you know, it, I looked over and it kind of looked right at me. And I said, well, you know, it's kind of silvery. And Dale, what do you think? And she came, <laughs> she, she had been sitting on the bed and I was sitting in a chair and she got up and she came over to where I was sitting and sat down next to me. And she took the clip at the back of her, you know, she has a ponytail and she has a clip. She took the clip off, so she let her hair out. I'd never seen her hair out of that ponytail in, in the years that I'd known her. And she let all of her hair out. She said, Dale, what do you think? <laughs> and I looked in the hair and I said, well, Jane, there's, there's brown in here and there's some, you know, honey colored and there's, I see some gold, and I, you know, and it was true that you know her hair is not just gray, and uh, and then she put her the clip back on, and she said, "Thank you, Dale," and <laughs> and if you get the biography, you'll look at you'll see on the first two pages that I talk about the color of her hair, <laughs> but that you know, so she does have an ego, and you know she wants to get things right, but it's remarkable how, um, you know, how she, how freely she let me investigate every private corner of her life without, you know, any limitation or inhibition. It was just, just the thing that most impressed me about her. Indeed admirable. We're coming up, but we're limited on time here. But, you know, one of the most important questions, I think, uh, especially in terms of, I want you. I, I want our listeners to really go get this book. So I want you to tease them a little bit. In the Ghost of Gombe, we learn about a tragic death of one of the researchers, and you know, you we've alluded to that earlier. But what is the mystery here? I mean, uh, why why does this you know such an unsolved matter, if it is at all? Well, I think it is unsolved in the sense that something that happened 40 years ago uh, can probably never be fully solved. And I think there is a mystery, and that, and that is the core of the book. But, uh, and, you know, the book talks about what's mysterious about this death. It was this sudden, violent death. Uh, there were no witnesses that we know of. And uh, it happened in a very remote part of Africa. Uh, and the book, basically, so what happened? Uh, we know from the circumstances that she fell off a cliff or a high waterfall. There are three ways to fall. You can jump, you can fall accidentally, you can be pushed. And I, I felt as I wrote the book that this was, uh, and what I did, and the book is the result, the book, basically, the entire book is my attempt to answer that question, what happened? And uh, I did it in large part by presenting a, a very, very detailed portrait of events and people and everyone who was there at the research camp, including you know, the workers and including the chimpanzees, some of them. So it's an intense portrait of a, a research camp at a certain time and place. Uh, the answer to the mystery, I mean, if you, if I were Agatha Christie and you asked me this question, 
probably I should say the same thing. That, um, you know, there's there's something to find in that book, and but you should buy the book. I'm not going to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I'm not going to tell anybody either because it's a great, great book. It tells a wonderful adventure story, and at the same time, as as I said earlier, it, it's a uh, it's a documentary. Uh, yeah. And rarely do we get to see that kind of information combined in um, in anywhere as near uh, as eloquent a matter as you have done. Uh, in just uh, 30 seconds or so, um, share with our audience, Dale, where they can learn more about you, your website, your blog, any appearances that you're making, where they can get your book, and so forth. Well, I think the book is pretty easy to find. It's- Go to the bookstore, go to Amazon, uh, Ghosts of Gambi is the title. Gambi is the name of Jane Goodall's research site in Africa, so that's G-O-M-B-E. Uh, and yeah, I do have a website, I think you mentioned it, dalepetersonauthor.com. Uh, so all of that information is there. I think the biography is really a precursor to this book, and this book is you know, an expansion of the biography. Uh, the big difference is just the focus of the biography is long. It's 650 pages that covers uh, about 65 years of Jane Goodall's life. So that's about, um, you know, 10 pages per year. And this covers two years and 200 pages. So that's about 100 pages per year. I don't mean to cut you off, sir, but we are just out of time. Once again, the book, The Ghost of Gombe, a great read. I really recommend it. I want to thank you, Dale, for your willingness to share uh, with us today. Well, we've come to the end of another episode of Provocative Enlightenment. I want to thank all of you for joining us today. I hope you enjoyed our show and would join us again next week, same time. Until then, remember, wherever you are in the world, believing in yourself always matters. Provocative Enlightenment has been brought to you by Progressive Awareness Research and other sponsors. Provocative Enlightenment is a syndicated show and appears on other networks. For a schedule of showtimes, visit ProvocativeEnlightenment.com. If you're interested in becoming a sponsor, write to Eldon at EldonTaylor.com.